Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. It's a privilege to join you again. I've been asked to use my designated 15 minutes or so to introduce Isaiah in 15 minutes. That's uh, approximately four chapters a minute. Um, but the, um, the, the reality is I'm going to do something a little different. I, I've never been very good at following instructions. So I will sidle into Isaiah in a minute, but I want to come in through the side door precisely because this is a missions conference. As we become more and more familiar with different cultures around the world, now that there is much more movement and cities that were all white or all Western or all one thing or another nowadays have become cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic, multilinguistic cities, as we become aware of these things, it has had an impact on how we think about doing theology. For example, I've had friends in Africa tell me something that is also told me by friends in Southeast Asia. Don't try to evangelize there, they say, talking about guilt. Talk about shame instead. In the West, you're full of the judicial heritage, the forensic heritage. You talk about guilt, and, and the cross comes, and, and Jesus pays for our sin. He takes away our guilt. But, but if you're in Southeast Asia, there is much more concern about shame and conversely about honor than there is about guilt and forgiveness. So therefore, it is argued, if you want to evangelize effectively in those corners of the world, you need to latch on to what is perceived to be at the heart of the human condition. How do we think about such things? How should we think about such things? Well, the problem is that we're starting with the human condition instead of starting with the Bible. What does the Bible say about guilt? What does the Bible say about shame? What does the Bible say about forgiveness? What does the Bible say about honor? Indeed, we quickly discover that the Bible addresses both polarities. So shouldn't we be addressing both polarities? Not only so, but both polarities are distorted by our respective cultures. In the West, where we're much more eager to talk about guilt than about shame, often what we mean by guilt is guilty feelings. But when the Bible speaks of sin and guilt, it means genuine objective guilt before God. And therefore, it is His forgiveness that we must receive. And when the Bible speaks of shame, and it does, either explicitly or implicitly, as, as early as Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve hide from the face of God because they're ashamed. Then what we discover is that the shame that the Bible is concerned to address is not quite the notion of shame that pervades in Nigeria or that prevails in Malaysia. 
There, shame is so often bound up with loss of face before family or friends. But the Bible is most interested in shame where we have lost face before God. Honor is not dictated by how well we uphold our end of the stick in the family clan. It's whether or not we are characterized by the fear of the Lord. So what we discover is that, yes, it is true that different sectors of the world, different cultures, have different prevailing emphases on human relationships that need to be addressed at some point. But the truth of the matter is that whether in Southeast Asia or Northern Ireland, we can muck up our own heritages pretty badly and have a distorted view of guilt and a distorted view of shame, a distorted view of honor, a distorted view of forgiveness. The only solution for these things, brothers and sisters in Christ, is to make sure that we ourselves and the missionaries we send are steeped in the categories of Holy Scripture. There simply is no shortcut. Now, it's true the questions they raise when they get to wherever they are going may be triggered in slightly different directions. That's true. We learn questions by asking questions. We learn answers, rather, by asking questions. That's true. Yet at the end of the day, unless our categories are essentially biblical categories, we will not gain and then present the, the, the biblical balance on these and a host of related issues. We, we will focus too narrowly or in too cutesy a way on that which seems to be sociologically driven. That's the first thing I want to say. The second is that the Bible as a storyline has many, many strands that drive the discussion to the expectation of a spectacular Messiah. On the one hand, as early as Genesis 3, we anticipate the victory of the seed of the woman. Abraham, with the giving of the Abrahamic covenant, is told that in him and in his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. A little less than a millennium later, Moses is used by God to give us the law. And with the law, a priesthood, mediation between God and sinners, a sacrificial system where we learn about blood sacrifice in some detail a tabernacle or a temple, a meeting place between God and his sinful people, statutes and laws of various kinds that order society and restrain sin and anticipate what is yet to come. And then there's the rise of the Davidic monarchy. Oh God, how we need a king. After the mess of judges where everyone does that which is right in their own eyes, how we need a king. But the kings turn out to be a bit of a mess, don't they? Not just the really awful ones, like Ahaz and Manasseh, but even a man like David, who's a man after God's own heart, manages to commit adultery and murder. If that's what the man after God's own heart does, good grief, what will the rest of them do? Shame everywhere. So that when we come in the third place to the book 
of Isaiah, what we discover is that so many of these strands are worked out in a book that is enormously allusive. That is, it alludes to many of the themes that have been developed in Scripture and sets the stage, sets the platform for what is yet to come. What we discover is that all the strands that I've mentioned and many more that I haven't even listed drive us to Jesus. Take, for example, the kingship theme. What is the very first verse of the New Testament? The origins of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And then you begin the genealogy, broken up into slight, three slightly artificial sections, each of them in their own way pointing to the Davidic king, the coming Davidic king. But this Davidic king, picking up language from Isaiah, is announced as Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. For, for, for then we are reminded that the coming expected one in the prophecy of Isaiah, though he is born of the seed of David, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He shall reign on the throne of his father David. Of the increase of his kingdom there shall be no end. But he is also called the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And gradually the categories are pulled back and pulled back until the Old Testament saints cry with one voice, where will this culmination bring us? Where is this new Jerusalem, this, this new consummation, this, this chant in a renewed Jerusalem where people cry out, the Lord reigns, the Lord is there? Which brings me to my third observation. Isaiah is an interesting book. It's unlike in some ways, any other Old Testament prophecy. Jeremiah and Ezekiel minister at about the same time, but their focus of rebuke and exhortation and condemnation and calls to repentance, their focus is much, much narrower. Let me stipulate a little bit where the history of the book of Isaiah runs. In 722 B.C., which is when the northern tribes are taken off into exile under the Assyrian regional superpower, the, the south was still relatively saved. But the, the Assyrians were overthrown by the Babylonians. The Babylonians invaded Jerusalem three times, taking off people each time. In 605 B.C., in 596 B.C., 586 B.C., and then the first exiles start to return in 539 B.C., so we're already running from 722 to 539. That's more than a century and a half. And the vision is cast even farther to the time when there will be some sort of restoration, when the city will be rebuilt. That takes you down to the times of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, and the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the last Old Testament figure on the storyline who surfaces in the canon of the Old Testament. So Isaiah himself is a pre-exilic prophet. That is, 
He's a prophet who lives in the 8th century, the 700s before Christ, and he witnesses some of the devastation that takes place in the northern tribes when they go off into captivity, and he witnesses some of the devastation when the Assyrians try to take down Jerusalem and fail. And he writes about one-third of his book, chapters 1 to 38 or so, that in a way that covers about 739 to 701 B.C. But then in chapters 39 to 40, he anticipates the next wave. He addresses what takes place when the Babylonians have come to power. And then what happens when the people of God, the covenant people of God, are themselves in exile in, in Babylon, all the way to the time when there are glimpses of their return in 639 B.C. And then in the last chapters, 56 to 66, he surveys ahead. He addresses his readers ahead, long after he's dead, from 539 to 400 B.C., the period of the return and the anticipation of what God will ultimately do to save his people. Now, what is striking about all of this is how the text moves, how Isaiah moves, how the book of Isaiah moves again and again and again rapidly from the most abject denunciations of sin to the most awe-inspiring promises of hope. Condemnation of guilt, exposure of shame, calling people to repentance because judgment is coming. And judgment did come through those regional superpowers. Horrendous deaths. And God stands behind it all in His sovereignty, somehow bringing that judgment. If you want to curl your hair, go home tonight and quietly read on your knees Isaiah 10, 5 and following, where it is God Himself who raises up the Assyrians to punish Him to punish his broken covenant people and trample them down like mud in the streets. But this same Isaiah promises us a suffering servant who is wounded for our transgressions. It's the extremes of the depictions that are so capturing in Isaiah. And that reminds us of something fundamental. For when we think of world mission, we should not be thinking about only how to address symptoms, poor education, corruption in government, inadequate medicine. All of those things are the result of sin and shame and the like. That's true. That's true. And if we can do good, we ought to do good. Galatians tells us to, go, to do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. But behind it all are people who stand under the judgment of God and whose only hope is the mercy of God. You must be square with what the gospel is. You must see that our greatest danger here in Northern Ireland and the greatest danger in Uzbekistan or in Colombia or in Japan or in the United States is that we fall under the judgment of God so well deserved. And the only hope in all of these places is the grace of God.
And that's one of the things that I hope will stand out in our studies in Isaiah during the next five days. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.